Our text for this morning is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 55, beginning in verse 10. And it says this, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return uh, there but uh, water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace, and the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please welcome Pastor Wes Van Fleet forward, please? Thank you. Good to be back with you guys. Well, Matt always overdoes it on the introductions, and uh, we are we're thankful to know you guys. And I think I say every time, it really is like coming and being with family here. So uh, it's, it's a joy to be with you guys again. Um, and just a quick note before I pray, uh, Josh Cass, you held out on me for too long. Uh, that Thousand Tongue song is my favorite song, and Josh leads worship for us on Saturday nights, and he did not sing this song for like six months. And the whole reason I wrote this sermon and preached it last week was as I sent it to him, I was like, he will pick a thousand tongues. <laughs> to go with this, and he didn't, but I'll get it this morning, so let me pray. Father, we are incredibly thankful to be your children, that if we know you, it is because you have chosen to reveal yourself to us. You have, in your great grace and kindness, opened our eyes to who you are, what you have done through your Son, and what you are doing by your Spirit. Lord, we are thankful for your word, that it is your special and direct revelation to us so we don't have to try to figure out who you are and what you are like and what you have done, but you have given it so there could be clarity. And Lord, we, we confess many times your word is difficult for us to understand, and Lord, there's even times where it grows dry and we grow cold towards it, and we ask this morning that you would come and revive us, that you would help us to see the beauty, the power, and the purpose of your word, and would you through it so raise up your son in a way that each person in here sees him, knows him, loves him, and worships him, and is sent out by the power of the Spirit, longing to make him known to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to our family and to our friends. So Lord, would you come now and through your word do a good work and really raise up the glory of your son in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, there was a season, I'm sure everyone in here is, is aware of this channel called HGTV. 
And there was this season where I would walk in from the office. My office is on the outside of the house. Uh, and so I come in, and my wife, around usually 1 to 2 p.m., that's like quiet time for our girls, right? So the girls are doing their own thing in another room, and that's my wife's time to watch a show, to read, and usually nap. And every time I would walk in, the, these shows would be on HTV. Uh, you know, there's a different couple in every state now that takes these houses that are basically broken down and beat up, and they, they flip these houses, and they take these things which are really trash in one sense and turn them into to treasure. You see these people buy these houses, and they're, they're junk, and then they come back six weeks, eight weeks later, and they just can't believe that this is a house, the same house that they had bought months earlier. Well, in the same way, I think we all find something, whether it's a house or antique cars or whatever it might be, we find something alluring. When something goes from someone else's trash into another person's treasure, we love seeing things restored and being made new. It, it, it gives hope to us that all things don't have to come to an end, that maybe one day all things will be made new and beautiful. Now, this sermon is one that I preached last week. At Kaleo, every single year for the last 10 years, we do the last sermon of the year on the Word of God. And so you guys get it as the first sermon, right, of the year. And so the reason we do this is because we believe the Word of God is the primary means of making people new. That this is, yes, God uses other things, but this is the primary means that God is using to transform his people, and his creation. And even more so, it does more than taking one person's trash and turning it into treasure. It is the only thing that can take what's dead and make it alive. So if you haven't already, open with me to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55 will be in verses 10 through 13. <clears throat> now, we don't have time to go into the whole context of Isaiah, but in short, you have these two parallel tracks running through the whole book. And it's one, one track is this track of judgment that the people of God and the surrounding nations have not obeyed God as they ought. And then running parallel to that track is this other track of salvation that despite all of this disobedience, God is on a rescue mission to save a people for himself. And you keep following these themes throughout, or through Isaiah, and you get to chapter 40, and all of a sudden, 40 starts to kind of narrow in this focus, and it starts to bring these things together as we see that God himself is on a mission to rescue both Jew and Gentile. You see, the whole world at this time was surrounding the nation of Israel. It, God had so placed this people in the center of the world geographically that they were supposed to be a light to all these different nations. But as we continue to read through Isaiah, we see that the people of God are in exile because rather than being a light to the nations that were surrounding them, they looked exactly like the nations surrounding them. They started to worship their gods. They started to look more like them. And so God, in his loving fatherly discipline, let them go into exile under the rule and captivity of Babylon. And so then that brings us to our 
passage tonight. We get into Isaiah 55, and we see that God's purposes keep getting more and more narrow. And he is on a passionate mission to make broken things new. This includes his people who are in exile, and this includes the people who have his people in exile. And so he has all these people groups in mind, and he is coming to make alive that which was once dead. Now, the way he's going to do this is twofold. He is going to use his word, as we will see tonight, but he's also going to use a people. He's going to use a people to take his word. Now, first, let me ask you guys a question before we get into the passage a bit. If you were asked what the purpose of God's word is, what would you say? As you think about that, what are some of the things that would come to mind if, if one of your pastors or a neighbor, someone just sat you down and said, what is, what is the purpose of God's word? Now, I think some people would say it, it teaches us how to live moral lives. Others might say it teaches us how to live as good people. Others might say it teaches us about God in some ways. And there might be some who even say it teaches us what we must do to be saved. And while I think all of these have some truths to them, Isaiah has something to say very clearly about the purpose of God's word. Look at verse 10 with me. He begins this thought when he says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. I'm going to stop there before we go to 11. Isaiah's giving us this illustration, and it's about rain, and it's about snow coming down from the heavens, which is just another word in, in this context for the sky, coming down in a way that hits the ground, soaks into the ground, and through God's creative abilities, the sunshine hits, and amazing enough, these things called plants start to grow out. And Isaiah's trying to give this clear picture that rain and snow have a purpose. That in God's created world, they're not just something we look at and say, oh, that's really pretty, or man, it's going to flood today. But it has a purpose, and that's the way God had created the world. Now, to Isaiah's people, to the people in this context, rain and snow were actually absolutely necessary. Right? They couldn't just go to the spigot the way we do, turn on the water, and start to bring about plants. Right? They couldn't just set the timer for their sprinklers and say, okay, this will all be taken care of. In fact, they were so dependent on rain, not just for food and crops for themselves, but to make money and to survive, that an illustration like this in the middle of the desert means quite a bit to them. And we see exactly why, because then he's going to make this connection to why he uses this illustration. Look at verse 11 with me. With the rain and snow coming down in mind and these plants growing up, he says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the things for which I sent it. 
So in the same way that God had created rain and snow to, the fall, to fall to the ground and bring about plants and fruit and crops, he's using that whole illustration to make this point. His word goes out with an intended purpose to bring something about. It's not just an intellectual, academic thing that we assent to, that, oh, we know a lot of things about God. But the word is supposed to come down and so change the properties of his created world. That it's supposed to bring about something different, and that is the intention when God speaks. Let me give you an example. In Genesis 1-3, the very beginning of the Bible, right, there, there is nothing And God starts to speak into this world. And in verse 3, it says, God said, let there be light, and there was light. You see, God's intention here was in this dark void, he would speak that there would be light. And guess what? (laughs) There would be. And what did he use? His word. He, he speaks, he has an intended purpose in mind, and whatever he intends to happen will happen. Now, this is humbling news if you are a follower and disciple of Jesus. Because what this means is that if you have somehow come to believe in Jesus and follow him, if you have affections that are for him now, you don't see obeying him as something terrible, but you want to obey him, this means that God intended through his word to so open your eyes to the good news of the gospel and by his spirit give you a new heart that would actually love him. It doesn't mean that you were smart enough to figure things out, that as you laid down, okay, I'm going to study Islam for a bit, I'm going to study Mormonism, I'm going to study Buddhism, I'm going to study all these different things, okay, this one seems logically most sure, which I would argue it actually is still, but the reason we have been made new is because God so intended. You were not smart enough. This is a humbling reality. But on the other hand, and this is the harder part to hear sometimes for some of us, this means our family, our friends, our co-workers, fellow students at school who who do not know Jesus, it's not because they are too dumb to figure it out. It's because God has not so chosen to use his word yet to bring about new life in them. Now, Some of us hear that and get a little suspicious, right? We say, okay, well, why in the world would I share the gospel? God's going to do whatever he wants, right? If he has an intended purpose, he'll bring it about whether or not I talk about the word or not. Well, see, this this is a wrong understanding because what this is saying is God is ultimately in charge of what he does with the gospel. But he has also clearly commanded his people throughout scripture to be the messengers of that gospel. And what this does is it actually frees us of the guilt that comes when we preach the gospel or share the word and someone doesn't believe. It frees us from the pride and arrogance when we think we're smarter than the one next to us who share the gospel correctly. And this actually gives us a joy to share it more liberally, saying, I will share it because it is exactly that, good news. 
And I'm trusting the sovereign God who made me new to do the same in them when he intends to. This is freeing. And this is the power of his word. Now, while God always accomplish, accomplishes what, what he intends to, we also see in our passage today that God's word is packed with power. God's word is packed with power. Now, if you're like me, there's mornings where you wake up, or for some of you, you might do your devotions or readings later on in the day, but you can open the Bible, and it seems to be completely void of power whatsoever. In fact, you may get to a passage with a genealogy, and you're reading it saying, I don't know how to pronounce these names, let alone what is the purpose of all of this. There could be weeks on end where you are saying, okay, I'm going to commit myself to reading this, knowing that God will work through it, and really, if you're honest, man, I don't, I don't know where God is, I don't know what he's doing, and yet, this is his chosen means to communicate himself to us, and not only that, it's his, tr- it's his chosen agent to transform us. As dry as it may seem sometimes, and as difficult as it is to understand at times. Look at verse 13 with me. Isaiah writes, Instead of thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Now again, Isaiah's continuing this nature imagery, right? He began with rain and snow falling to the ground and these plants starting to grow. And now he's starting to use these different kinds of plants to communicate something to us. Now when he mentions thorns and briars, he has in mind the curse. He has in mind that the world is plagued not only in each person, but in all aspects of all of his creation, is tarnished with the curse. That things aren't the way they ought to be. This would have taken the uh, audience that Isaiah was talking to all the way back to Genesis 3 when the curse began. You see, in Genesis 3, if you're unfamiliar, Adam and Eve were placed in this lush garden full of fruitful plants, and God had said you could eat all of them except one. And Adam and Eve, rather than trusting the word of God that he so graciously spoke to them, decided to trust the word of the serpent, and all of a sudden, the curse comes flooding into the world. Everything is broken. Things aren't the way it's supposed to be, and we read this in Genesis 3, and we see some of our thorn imagery here. When God says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Now, of course, Isaiah's audience would have known this imagery. Genesis 3 was a a big event in their history. But Isaiah, more than any other book in the Old or New Testament, uses language of thorns and briars and thistles throughout the whole book. Now, I could sit here and read 30 different ones to you. I'm going to give you three just to kind of prove a little bit of my point here. 
Isaiah 5, 6 says, I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns will grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Isaiah 7, 24, with bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. Isaiah 32, 12 and 13, beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars. You see, the people of God, they're, they're in exile. They are growing up around a people that are, in a real sense, being choked out by the thorns of the curse. I mean, imagine looking around and you're not in the land that God said would be the land of blessing, but you're under the rule and authority of a foreign people. All you see around you is vile, anger, murder. You see, it just seemed to be going downhill everywhere you look. I imagine that as the people of God sit there in exile, experiencing the realities of the curse, like dried up and dying plants, they long for God's grace to come and water them again. They long to be fed by His grace and to be nourished and to be alive rather than dying and wasting away. Like dead and cursed plants longing for rain in the desert, so these people are longing to drink of God's grace once again. But listen to the power of God's Word to change the cursed into something beautiful. I'm going to read 13 again, and with all this context in mind, listen to the language. Instead of thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. You see, God's word, it's coming down and it's transforming. It's this promise to make new that which is cursed by bringing up something different, something beautiful. You see, the cypress and the myrtle, these were plants of plenty. These were plants that, and trees that would grow up, and the people of God identified them with God's grace, with his beauty. That which was once dead and cursed now is coming up in life and beauty. This means that God is promising to use his word as a means to take what is dead and what is cursed and make it alive and beautiful and thriving in his world. Now, as I read this and I try to put myself in the shoes of Isaiah's audience, this may be a hopeful promise. This may move my eyes off the present circumstances for a moment, but I'm wondering how in the world could he do such a thing? I mean, as you look around you, you see nothing but hostility. I think of the parents who had once been free under God's care and grace and were ushered into exile who would tell their children the stories of when God was ruling in power, when he was parting the Red Sea, when he was doing all these miraculous things, only for these parents to die in exile. 
I think of the children who would have been born in exile, and because it was 70 years long, and the lifespan was not as long as ours is now, there would have been many who would have been born and died in exile. Never seen God do anything miraculous. But keep hearing these promises from Isaiah that things will one day again be beautiful. My guess is that a lot of them would have had a hard time believing this. A lot of them would have wondered, how in the world is God going to do such a beautiful thing? It doesn't look like we're the covenant people of God. In fact, we look just like all the other nations still to this day. Well, maybe you're in here this morning and you can relate to this. Maybe as you look back at 2019, you see nothing but curse and death. Maybe loved ones in your family have gotten sick and maybe even passed away. Maybe your job is something that day after day you can't imagine waking up to your alarm one more morning and going again and dealing with those coworkers. Maybe your kids, although you've worked hard to raise them to know Jesus and love them, keep rebelling. And, and even if you're honest, you can't obey the Lord yourself. And maybe... Just maybe the word of God to you has become a thing that you don't think can change anything whatsoever anymore. If things look this bleak for you, how in the world can a book, can the word of God come and take something so dead and so cursed and so discouraging and turn it into something beautiful and alive? Well, the good news is that the Word of God became a person himself. The Word of God himself, named Jesus, cared so deeply about his creation, so deeply about his people that he wasn't content staying in heaven and looking down, hoping that we would just get our act together. Instead, he, he put on flesh and the word of God himself came down into this cursed world to live a life we should have lived. He came down and lived among those who had rebelled against him. The same exact one who spoke, let there be light and there was light, is the one who would come down and bring light into darkness. John 1, 1 through 4 says it this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, or the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Again, in John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father full of grace and truth. You see, Jesus continued this mission to bring life to the world and to make things new by putting on a body himself and coming face to face with cursed things. There's a million examples, but I'll give you a few. Jesus came to lepers. 
Lepers whose skin was day after day dying as it got white and flaky and started to flake off of their bodies. And if in those times the Levitical law would bar you from touching a leper leper because you would become unclean. But Jesus would put his hands on the lepers and he would speak his word to them and all of a sudden their skin was made new. Jesus came into the first century social structures that said that women were lesser than men, and he started to reverse that curse by showing that women were worthy of being loved and honored just like men. Jesus came to the deaf, those who couldn't hear the word of God, and he opened their ears so he could speak his word into their ears and make them new. And despite all these things, as beautiful and powerful as they are, there was still one major problem with the curse. That each and every human being from Adam and Eve on would have to face death. But you see, Jesus came down to reverse this curse, to make that which is dead alive. And so death being the one enemy that Adam and Eve, those in Isaiah's day, and you and I couldn't escape on our own, Jesus came to do something even far more spectacular, something far more life-giving, and yet most people missed it. If you're in here today and you don't know Jesus, my prayer has been throughout the week that you wouldn't miss it. It's been missed over and over because it doesn't look spectacular, but it's the greatest event in human history. And it was the event where Jesus himself, although breathing life into his creation and obeying the law perfectly, went to a cross, the place where the most vile of criminals were tortured and put to death. And prior to being hoisted up on the cross, These men had this intention of mocking him as they started to put together this crown of thorns. And this wasn't just an instrument that was meant to inflict extreme torture as these one to three inch thorns would be pressed in between your skin and your skull. No, for Jesus, he was saying, willingly put it upon my head. He submitted to this torture as an image to us that he himself was coming underneath the curse. All of the thorns, all of the people who have, rather than showing the light of God to the nations and instead looking like the surrounding nations, Jesus is saying, I will come under that curse for you. And so as he was hoisted up on the cross... And breathed his last. He had put an end to the curse once and for all. Galatians 3.13. Paul says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. By becoming a curse for us. For it is written. Cursed is everyone. Who is hanged on a tree. So as his body lay there lifeless in the tomb. He looked like a cursed and dead plant plucked from the ground and thrown to the side. But if you remember, the word of God always, one, fulfills its intended purpose, and two, is packed with power. 
So three days later, when all hope was at its end for the people of God, the word of God himself rose victoriously. He himself, as the model or the prototype, was the first to raise from the dead, showing that the curse and all of its effects have been defeated once and for all. And Paul picks up this imagery of, of the resurrection and ties it together with the imagery of Isaiah 55 and uses plants to show us what this means for us. Listen to it. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 22. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The use of that word there when, when Paul says first fruits, he, he has this picture in mind. He has this picture of a farmer or a harvester who has prepared this massive field for the crops to come who has, has waited for the season of rain to finally come, and this, this huge brown plain that's just waiting for life, all of a sudden, looking out upon it, this one little sprout comes up. And because there has been seed worked into the ground, the farmer knows that as surely as this first sprout has popped up, so surely will there be tons to follow. Recently, I was sitting in my office, and outside my office window, there's this just ugly field, right? It's always just brown, nothing pretty to look at. But as these rains came, and as I was writing this sermon, all of a sudden, within hours, like I had looked, and it was brown, and then hours later, there was just green poking up. Now, they're weeds, you know, but it's still pretty to me. It's better than brown. Uh, and all of a sudden, it, it, to me, it was like, that is how sure this makes the resurrection for the people of God. That is, Christ was the first fruit to burst through the ground. So we will follow. In a real sense, the word has brought that which only could bring death and has brought life. The other day I saw this video, and you guys have probably seen one of these, but this one was uh, particularly uh, impactful for me. There's this guy, he's somewhere in the south, and you know, he's got the, the tough guy southerner persona, right? And it, it's his birthday party. He's in his 60s, maybe 70s, and his kids, who are all grown adults, they, they bring him his birthday present, right? And he's sitting here on the stairs in their front yard, and they're like, open your present. And he's, you know, trying to be humble and not drawing attention to himself. Well, he opens up his present, and he's like, it's a pair of sunglasses. And he goes, I don't, I don't need sunglasses. And they're like, put them on, Dad. And you find out that this guy had been born colorblind. All right, so for 60, 70 years, he's only seen in neutrals and dullness. And he puts on these glasses and at first, it, it's just complete silence, and he, he's just looking around, and he's shocked. And then he, he looks at the door, and on the door, they have some, some kind of flower deal going, and he, he's shocked at the color of the flowers. And then he turns his head, and he looks out, and he starts to see the color of the trees. 
And they're like, what do you think, Dad? And then he brings his kids near, grown adults that he spent years and years with. And he notices the color of their eyes. And all of a sudden, the tough guy persona drops. And he stands there on the stairs, and he starts to just shake. And, and it, it's like a giddiness that he can't let out the joy that he's feeling. And all of a sudden, he says, I'm finally seeing in color. And in the same way for us, when, when we've put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, not just in his death for our sins, but his resurrection to bring us life, it's as if the dullness and the grays of the curse have been subdued as the color of God's grace has come rushing into the world. Now Paul picks up a similar idea here in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, explaining what has happened to those who've put their trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He says, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, using Genesis 1, 3, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What Paul is trying to say is, the great power of God's creation through his word has so shown into us that now we no longer are those who are so inhibited and subdued by the curse that now we start to see color in the world as we see what God is doing, not just raising people from the dead, but making us have purpose as parents, as kids, in the workplace, as neighbors, that we have this special message that we get to take humbly and gladly that is so coloring the world as God will intend to use it. We are, in a sense, little plants to keep Isaiah's imagery that are to beautify the world by loving the way Jesus first loved us. I have this friend who works in Pine Valley. That's a good drive from here, but where we're at in El Cajon and Lakeside, it's about 25 minutes east on the 8. Uh, he's been a manager of this little convenience store and gas station there for almost 10 years. Uh, he's, a, he's a Middle Eastern refugee who came here as a, as a young child, and this is what he does. Now, I go visit him as often as I can because it's pretty lonely out in Pine Valley. And every time I go out there, uh, it's, it's a joy. He's one of my best friends, it's, so it's a joy just to be with him. But almost every customer that comes in starts to talk about Jesus with him. And they say, oh, Fadi, that verse you shared with me, that verse you had shared with me last week, God is just using it in a new way. And then you'll see someone else come in, and they might not know Jesus, and my friend starts sharing the gospel with them. Well, Christmas morning, he sends me this text and says, we have some good humor, but he's like, I'm laying in the fetal position crying right now. And he's, he's joking, but there's probably some truth to it. Uh, and he sends me these pictures and he got a flood of Christmas cards, not just from people who live in Pine Valley, but Border Patrol agents who go in, CHP officers, and all of these letters, all of these cards, thank you for sharing who God is with me. Thank you for being bold enough with me. Thank you for saving my marriage. One man in the middle of Pine Valley being faithful enough with God's word is so using it to bring life 
to that little area of the world. That which was once darkened by the curse is now colorful and full of life. And I say this to encourage you because we often think we need to take apologetics classes or we need to take some theology class or we need more. And the truth is, God intends to use the most immature, unlearned Christian to be faithful and passionate about the good news about something someone else did so that we can just say, look at what he's done. And then we can say, Lord, please use that. Whereas James 1.18 so summarizes, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You see, the language and imagery of Isaiah 55.12, which I skipped on purpose and saved till the end, is beautiful and drives a lot of this home. Isaiah writes, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace in the or the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Now first, this little phrase, you shall go out. For us, we might read right past that. But for Isaiah's audience, it is a clear allusion back to the Exodus. You see, they're in exile. They're under captivity and the rule and oppression of the Babylonians. And they've heard of this famous story where God had so rescued his people out of Egypt and brought them into his loving care powerfully. And Isaiah, through God's word, is saying that this will again happen. That there will be a day where they will go out of exile and into the care of their God. But he's not just looking forward to 70 years or so later when they come out of exile physically. He's looking forward to the day where Jesus would die on a cross and would raise from the dead, where our slavery and captivity to sin and the curse would be defeated once for all, and he would so enable us by his spirit to go out into the world and give color and life to it. You see, this imagery of this passage is trying to make clear that the celebration of God's creation is so loud because what God has done is final. You see, notice that imagery. I, I couldn't get, up, get over this while studying this passage. The mountains are singing. The trees are clapping. What it's trying to say is, as Paul's talking about in Romans 8, where all the creation's longing, right, for restoration, Isaiah's looking forward and saying, there is a day, there is a day where the curse will not only be done and paid for by Jesus, but the new heavens and new earth will be ushered in. And all of creation, all of God's people, it will only be celebratory all of the time. That's the whole point of the end of verse 13 in Isaiah 55, when Isaiah declares about the transformed people of God, he's talking about us. Listen how special this is. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. You see, we would think he was talking about Jesus or something there, but he's actually talking about the plants that have been redeemed, that this new life, this cypress and this, this myrtle that has come up, those who've been redeemed, these will be everlasting signs, eternal signs that have no end. 
And that's what we get to be right now, signposts to Jesus. Saying, look what he has done. He's made me new. He wants to make you new. And if you would believe in this good news, it could make you new. So yes, we are reflections of his beauty who get the great privilege to carry around his good news. Does this mean God needs us? Absolutely not. He's powerful enough to do this without us. But does it mean it's a privilege that he has chosen to use us? Absolutely. There's nothing more life-giving for the Christian, I would argue, than enjoying Jesus and sharing Jesus with others. Dane Ortland has this quote. He says, Divine beauty is, in its own finite way, to be reproduced. The supreme instance of divine beauty being reflected in creation is not in the sun or the Grand Canyon or even in a nightingale song, but in a Christian. A Christian is a mini-advertisement for divine beauty. To be a Christian is to be a little, frail, finite, morally faltering picture of the beauty of God. You see, this came about quickly after the resurrection. In the book of Acts, as you read through it, Jesus has resurrected from the dead. He has given his spirit to his people. And then he grabs his disciples and says he's about to bounce, right? He's like, I finished my part here. I'm going up to heaven, but you have the spirit. And then we see they don't sit around now that they got the Holy Spirit and think of the best structures or programs or ways to make the church grow. We see what they do is they start to go out and preach the word passionately, lovingly pointing to Jesus, knowing that God will use it the way he intends and that there's power in it. I'm going to read a couple verses and then we're going to close. Listen to this, and this goes all the way through the book of Acts and actually structures the book. Acts 6, 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Acts 12, 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Acts 19.20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. A lot of times the reason we get so stuck in what we're doing as Christians and get frustrated at not seeing other people know Jesus is because we trade out trusting the word of the Lord and the good news of the gospel for wanting another new ministry that will feed our needs. We don't need a ministry for ages 65 to 70. We don't need a ministry just for veterans. We don't need a ministry for struggling moms learning how to work all these things out. Yes, these are all real needs, but we need the gospel to come and unite all of us as different as we are around the good news of the gospel. This means that God's intended effect not only in Acts, but today, is that the church would come to be a body of people united around the Word of God, its intended effect, and its power. And in the same way he did in the first century, so God is bringing dead things to life. In fact, look around you. 
None of you would ever choose to come do this on a Sunday morning unless the Lord of glory had so shown in your hearts and glorified the Lord Jesus Christ. This is really weird, to be honest, what we do. Like we come here weekly, sing songs at a screen, hear some dude fumble over his words and talk about some things about Jesus, give each other hugs, eat some potluck or something, and go back and repeat. The only way to make sense of it is that there is new life in us. So when I closed at Kaleo, I closed exhorting and urging our missional communities, you guys have crowded houses, to be a people of God that take what we learn on a Sunday morning, gather with those people during the week, encourage one another with the good news in a way that is so encouraging that we then want to share it with our neighbors, our family, and our friends. What, what if that was applied Christianity at its simplest and yet its fullest? What if that is our calling, to take this good news into the world and make alive that which is dead? And so Infusion, I encourage you with the same thing, to elevate the majesty and beauty of the Lord to one another, and to those God has so providentially put in your life. Let's pray.